The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Today we talk to Dr. Preston Green, Professor of Educational Leadership and Law from the NEAG School of Education. Our conversation is about a growing phenomenon regarding educational mismanagement in charter schools. It seems we're just beginning to brush the surface of this issue at a national level and that there may be a larger international footprint. I'm joined by my co-host, Victor, and we hope you enjoy. Victor, welcome. Dr. Preston Green, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you are the professor in educational leadership as well as law. What exactly is the complementarity of those two fields? Sure. Um, Education and law really do, like, interact quite a bit. And any sort of issue you'll see in a school, you will also have a legal issue that arises. So if a student gets suspended or dismissed, that is an issue of due process. If a teacher talks about religion, that's a First Amendment issue. So really for any sort of issues in the classroom, legal issues do come up. Also, where I do a lot of my research, which is sort of in the policy realm, legal issues also come up. So, like, I do a lot of research on issues of privatization in charter schools in particular. What I try to do is to have people consider the legal and policy issues that may arise. For instance, when you think about uh, disciplinary issues or student rights issues, many people are unaware that the rights that a charter school student may have may not be the same as a student who attends a traditional public school because of the differences in charter school rules. So what exactly is a charter school? A charter school is a publicly funded school that is privately operated by a board of directors, like an appointed school, Mm -hmm. like an appointed board. So charters have the public funding. They have a lot of freedom from rules and regulations that apply to traditional public schools. And the thinking behind charter school legislation was to give creative people an opportunity to provide innovative education may not have occurred in traditional public schools. Mm -hmm. So that was the idea behind charters. What I do a lot of research on, however, is um, with this freedom comes in many cases insufficient regulation, insufficient oversight, and there have been instances where charter schools have taken advantage of this insufficient oversight to pocket more resources for themselves as opposed to serving the students whom they're supposed to be serving. So is this primarily like a financial mismanagement then, or is it also mistreatment of students or improper standards of education? So where exactly do the problems lie. In my research, my colleague and I have found instances where both have occurred. With respect to students, in our research, we have identified court cases where students did not have the due process rights that traditional public students have if they were to be suspended or expelled. And the argument in these cases is that these students could very easily just go to a traditional public school if things did not work out in the charter school. Mm -hmm. But what we've discussed in our research is that, in many cases, parents are not aware that this is the trade-off that they're making. And they are surprised when their children are suspended and expelled without due process. So that's an instance where you see 
different treatment for students in a charter school than you would see in a traditional public school. With respect to financial mismanagement, what we have been focusing in our research is this interaction between educational management organizations and charter schools. And educational management organizations can be for-profit or non-profit companies that provide a wide array of resources and educational services to the charter schools. And what we have pointed out in our research is that there are instances where those management organizations receive that money and there's insufficient oversight provided by the charter school boards and other entities that are supposed to be providing oversight to those charter schools. And so what ends up happening is that those resources then don't make it to the students in a way that it should. Mm -hmm. Um, An instance that we've really documented quite a bit occurs in real estate and that many of these EMOs may be nonprofit, but they have for-profit real estate corporations that are connected to them. And through some really complicated business arrangements, these for-profit entities end up renting to the charter school at a much higher rate than what the market rate would be. And sometimes 40% of the charter school's budget could go toward paying Mm -hmm. for rent. And that's three times the amount that is considered best practice for rent. So we sort of talk about these instances and then try to provide a schema to keep these problems under control. So first, let me ask you, how many charter schools actually exist throughout the country? And then what percentage of those are experiencing this mismanagement? Sure. There are about 7,000 charter schools right now throughout the country serving about 3 million students. That's about... Uh, 6% of the public school population. But there's always been talk about possible expansion for charter schools. And in fact, Secretary Betsy DeVos has made charter schools a focus. And so even though it's only 6%, there is that possibility that they could expand. And they're expanding in urban communities, in communities that serve predominantly black students. So there's a specific group of students Mm -hmm. who are now seeing more charter schools being provided for them. So does it seem that the mismanagement often occurs within those urban environments? Let me back up. You had asked me a a question about the proportion of the the 7,000. Now, I can't say that I've not seen any sort of compilation Mm -hmm. saying that there are a certain percentage, but we're definitely seeing anecdotal evidence that there are problems. And as I had said before, real estate is an example where we're seeing waste and mismanagement. So while I can't give you a specific X percentage, Mm -hmm. Y percentage, I'm saying that many reporters, analysts, uh, scholars are seeing more and more this anecdotal evidence that they're now saying that needs to be corrected. And is the mismanagement often seen at higher levels? Are there more anecdotes coming out of lower socioeconomic regions, or is it equally spread? Um, Let me think how I can answer that question. What I will say is that what we're seeing is that in places where you have a lot of charter schools, Mm -hmm. like Arizona, for instance, you're seeing this also in California, where you have a large number of charter schools and where the regulatory regime is not sufficiently strong, that's where you're seeing 
a lot of the abuse. Gotcha. And so there's a really great reporting out in Arizona right now that has been really cataloging a number of instances where individuals have been spending exorbitant amounts in real estate or vending contracts. So I think what I'm saying is that we're seeing it more anecdotally. I think the other problem, though, is that it's been really hard to sort of like compile Mm -hmm. that evidence. Um, I've had reporters talk to me off the record saying that they really have a hard time getting information from the state about Mm -hmm. some of these problems and that, you know, when they ask questions, they will have one gatekeeper or one entity that has the responsibility of saying, well, that's not our job, it's someone else's right. job. And then that other person, that other entity will say that's not our job as well. So I think that what we also need to see more of is just more data so that we can start designing systems to deal with the problem. So are we just brushing the surface with this? Is your opinion that there's a lot more going on than is known? I think there's a lot more going on that is known. The only statewide compilation I have seen thus far is the Grand Canyon Institute's analysis in Arizona, and what they found was that maybe like 77% of those charter schools enter into what are called related party transactions. This is an arrangement where you have a education management organization entering into a contract with a related company. And I don't call off the top of my head what the numbers were, but they certainly did document a wide amount of abuse where these transactions did not actually create the cost savings that was anticipated, but instead there was just a great deal of waste whereby they entered into lease agreements or vending agreements way above and beyond what would be considered good market value. So acknowledging that there is still data left to be uncovered, is there a tentative path forward, like legislatively speaking, as to how to begin addressing these problems? Yes. My colleagues and I have done a number of articles that talk about improving the gatekeeping for the charter school sector. And what we have done in our research is to identify all of the entities that are responsible for providing oversight of charter schools. These include auditors, charter school authorizers, charter school boards, and state departments of education, also the federal government. And we've gone through and identified various steps that each entity could take in order to guard against some of the issues of waste, fraud, and mismanagement that we're seeing. So let's take auditors. What we see with auditors is that all, most, all states require charter schools to have their books looked after by an independent auditor. And so the auditor then will look at the numbers and see how they add up, but they don't determine whether or not there may have been fraud Mm -hmm. in some of the contracts that maybe the education manager organization is providing services to the charter school has entered into. Mm -hmm. And so what we suggest for auditors is that instead of just looking to see if the numbers add up, they actually analyze the transactions, the contracts that the charter school enters into to determine whether or not there was good value. And that if they find that there are instances where there's an egregious waste, then they call the charter school board to task to ask them about that. And to then, what I would like to see eventually happen is to be able to call back that money if there is indeed egregious waste. 
And so I guess the charter schools themselves aren't going away. So what you have to do is come up with a sort of framework to prevent the abuse moving forward, right? Right. That's right. So how did you personally get involved in this line of research? I got involved in this line of research because about 20 years ago, when charter schools really started to come to the forefront, I was a major supporter. I joke that I'm not an enemy of the movement, Mm -hmm. as certainly people have portrayed me. But I saw charter schools as a way of providing options for urban students, for students of color, who may not have been receiving the best education in traditional public schools. And so I was very hopeful um, in the beginning that charter schools could provide a lot of promise, and some have. But throughout my research, I've begun to see that some of the systems issues, some of the attempts to provide more freedom also created intended problems that many of us did not anticipate. And so since then, I have spent my time developing ways to try to rein that in. And so charter schools, the benefit is it's less strict in the curriculum? Right. So there's more customization? The theory is that it's less strict, so there's more customization, um, more creativity. It's adaptable. It's moldable to the students. What, What are the standards, though, for charter schools? Well, they vary. They definitely vary by state. They generally have to follow the dictates of the charter, because the charter is the contract that sets out the academic requirements for the students and for the school. But they also have to comply with the same state assessments, the same assessments as traditional public schools. Mm -hmm. So there is that general requirement that they follow the same kind of academic guidelines. Where I see issues and where I tend to focus my research on is there's this attempt to bring in ideas of privatization into the public sector without creating an oversight system that takes these differences into account. Mm -hmm. So they could be entering into contracts, and the thinking is that these contracts are arm's length deals, but the folks who are on the other end of this, let's say the charter school boards who are entering into these contracts with various vendors, do not have that sophistication. So what we have been calling for is for a need to actually bring that sophistication, to bring that sort of like the considerations for oversight of private um, arrangements into this sector as well as bringing in this sort of idea of creativity into the sector. So since bringing this to light, have you seen a response from the charter schools or from state governments? I would like to think that um, there's more attention to it. I think that um, I I did see um, some state legislators for instance, in Pennsylvania, uh, referencing the charter school Enron article that I co-authored, calling for greater oversight. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're seeing that, and seeing instances of that. Also, I think in the news and other reporting, and I can see that framework being considered more. Mm -hmm. I know that when my colleagues and I wrote the Enron piece, a number of people said that we were exaggerating and we were making this up. But I've seen more and more people look at this and say that, oh, in real estate, these related party transactions are happening and this is an issue. And so I think that we've helped to bring more awareness to this issue. 
And it remains to be seen if we're going to see more legislation. I think we're starting to slowly see some understanding of the problem. And some positive momentum. Right. right? National coverage, getting more people to look into this within their own respective states and stuff. Correct. Yeah, and that's what you want. You want more people to target these issues. Right. Um, Personally, when you 20 years ago were in favor of charter schools, one of the reasons you said was the customization of the educational program. I think one thing we wanted to talk to you about, which references your work from a few years ago, is like virtual schooling, virtual education. Do you have an opinion on the effectiveness or whether or not a movement towards virtual education should be implemented in schools? I should preface this by saying I'm a lawyer. So whenever I get this question, my answer always is it depends. (laughs) So I would say that I come at this by saying that I don't mind seeing this approach. The problem, though, is that with, as in other instances of chartering, we're seeing virtual schooling being developed without a consideration to the impact on traditional schools, traditional systems, and without the oversight necessary to instances of abuse. So one issue that we're seeing uh, quite a bit of in virtual schoolings is the failure to count, the keeping track of like how many students are actually in the schools. And we see this quite a bit in Ohio, where some of these schools are receiving money for students who are no longer in those schools. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, an issue of insufficient record keeping, just not devoting the resources to guard against the mismanagement that we're seeing even in that sector. So I would say that while I'm supportive of this, I think that we have to be sure, for one, to guard against the fraud and mismanagement. And there's a general issue that I see that I've not talked about yet which is the impact on the traditional public school system as a whole. So you can have charter schools, you can have other sorts of various arrangements Mm -hmm. in addition to traditional public schooling, but each state has a state constitutional provision that mandates that they have to provide for the public educational system. So all of these schools that are, and all these ideas that are, happening within a system cannot detract from the state's ability or from the school district's ability to meet its educational responsibility to traditional schools. And so the big concern that I'm seeing with charter schools is this wish to have them be this sort of separate system, this dual system. Mm -hmm. And even though they are deemed to be public schools, there's this push to not consider them as part of that entire system and to not think about their impact on public schools. And that's something that I think I also would like to see more of a consideration of. Who decides which students attend the charter schools? Is it a personal choice or is it regional? Well, I mean, I think that what happens is that people do choose the schools that they wish to attend. It's not mandated, though, like if you live in this region, you have to attend this school. No, 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 no. They're they're considered schools of choice. So they kind of put out their shingle, as it were, and then Mm -hmm. students then choose to attend that school that they so wish. Now, we see problems in that in instances where maybe the charter school may not want particular students to attend. And so they may counsel those students out. They may not provide information about when a lottery is occurring so that students can enroll in those Mm -hmm. schools. So we do see these issues that we also need to attend to. 
we've been talking about a lot of the problems with charter schools, but have they been doing on any capacity what they had promised to do? Is there any improvement in outcomes for students, you know, educationally speaking? The research suggests that there isn't a major difference, that traditional schools and charter schools are about the same. Mm -hmm. The research seems to suggest that there really is no major difference in terms of the actual educational performance. So one might argue, though, that that's not a problem then, because if parents are happy about the choices that they're making, if they can choose this school that makes them happy, then that is okay. The concern that I have as mm -hmm. an educational law scholar who thinks about state constitutional systems is that you have to consider the overall ability of the system to provide for all of the students. Right. So when people make that argument, I would say that that's not the end of it. You have to consider the impact on the system as a whole. And there's more research that suggested that is problematic. David Arson, who's a professor in Michigan State University, looked at particular schools that got into financial trouble in Michigan and why. And what he found was that these schools were predominantly black schools that were subject to vouchers and also charter schools. And so that money that was being used for traditional public schools is being drawn into those schools, thus placing those school districts in financial difficulty. So my answer to these questions is that we have to think about the system as a whole mm -hmm. first. And if we can then guarantee that the system as a whole is working, then we can do some of the experimentation that they wish to have. Mm -hmm. One of the programs you started here at UConn is UCAP, U-C-A-P-P? -P. I started a program called UCAP Law. Yes. And that was a program that was designed to enable persons who want to get a law degree and also be a school administrator the opportunity to pursue both while in school. So mm -hmm. they could get a law degree and also do their 092 which is the certificate that one needs to become an administrator, like a principal in sure. Connecticut. And the reason why I thought about this was that I, over the years, have spoken to a number of students who were actually very interested in education, but wanted to pursue a law degree and also pursue a career in education, but just didn't know how to do them. And so what I did was to help create this pathway where a person can go to school either part-time or full-time in law school while also working on getting this administrative certification. Right. So that's one example that I've done with this. At Penn State, where I was before coming to UConn, I helped to create a joint degree program in education and law that would enable people to get degrees in education along with a law degree. And so people pursuing degrees in higher education or educational theory mm -hmm. and policy. And in fact, I just ran into some of them at a conference who were doing very good things nice. in those fields. So I was very, very happy to see that happen. And I did that in part because of my own background. I was very interested in both law and education, mm -hmm. but there was no real pathway for doing both when I was a student. And so I became very keen in developing those paths for people going forward. Can you talk about the particular advantages of having this kind of background? I think the big advantage is that, for one, they will have a working knowledge of kind of like the interplay of law and mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. So 
they will immediately think about like a special needs issue. They'll have the ideas of IDEA and Section 504. These are very important federal disability statutes in their heads. They'll also think about issues of discipline. They'll think about student rights. So they'll have these ideas in their heads while not being fearful about law. Mm. This is not something that's going to scare them. So they will have that knowledge. And they could also be what a former colleague of mine, David Schimmel, once called law teachers. They can help teachers and other staff members understand kind of like how the law applies to their jobs and to their work with students so that they have that knowledge and don't have that fear of law and they can spend more time concentrating on educating their students. So one of the main advantages is preventing unwanted litigation towards the schools. Right, right. Is there also room for improvement within the educational structure? Definitely heard of like complaints with Common Core yeah, things. It, so, or just understanding how governmental guidelines established for the educational systems might be improved or fixed in certain areas. Let me think. So... Now, you're asking about Common Core, was it? Well, no. not necessarily specifically Common Core, but just these kind of uh, criticisms that, for instance, occur with Common Core. When education is too regimented, right? So right, one right, of the right. benefits of charter schools is the customization. Public schools often have to meet the specific requirements set by the state. Whether understanding of both education and the law helps target that infrastructure and to right, make right, it. Right, right, right. Maybe I'm not going to answer your question completely, That's but fine. I will say that Law is always portrayed as a boogeyman. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, we can't do this because (laughs) the law says X, Y, or Z. But when you actually look at the law and how it applies in schools, what you find is that there's a great deal of flexibility. That courts will say that students' rights don't end at the schoolhouse gate, but then they will go on to say that those rights also take into account the context of school. So students actually have a great deal of flexibility and more leeway in ways that are not the same outside of the school context. So I think just understanding that, Mm -hmm. I think, goes a long way towards allaying fears. It also promotes a better learning environment. It promotes a better learning environment because I think that thinking about the rights of students, thinking about suspensions, thinking about expulsions, and thinking about kind of like like doing that balance between, let's say, considering a safe environment versus considering an environment that kids can learn, I think that having those thoughts in one's head can maybe enable people to be more thoughtful about how to balance those two competing concerns. And so where is your work headed towards in the future? Are you going to mainly focus on unraveling the story behind charter schools, or are you going to bridge elsewhere? Do you have other ideas? I've got a few projects. <laughs> there's always, that's the one fun thing about being a professor, mm-hmm. is, is a, being a professor, there's always something going right. on. One project that I'm working on is, in fact, I will hope to be done in early January, is to talk about kind of like how we're seeing issues of fraud and mismanagement in England's academy schools. And academy schools are very similar to charter schools in the United States. And they receive public funding, and they receive a great deal of freedom from rules and regulations that apply to locally controlled schools in England. So it's very similar Mm -hmm. to charter schools. After I had written the charter school Enron article, 
I started talking with an English reporter who said that the same things were happening in England. So I'm working on an article with a graduate student of mine that compares and contrasts these issues in the academy schools and charter schools. And the working title is Same Scams, Different Countries. <laughs> and we explain how these scams have occurred. And then we then look at the oversight systems in place. They're actually very similar in mm -hmm. the U.S. and in England and then make suggestions for how to fix those. I'll throw out one idea that we're playing around with is an idea of a whistleblower incentive program. Borrowing from what we see in the U.S. systems with various statutes that are designed to incentivize whistleblowers, the way these statutes work is that they will provide a monetary award for persons who alert the authorities about waste or mismanagement mm -hmm. And if the government can then get money back and with an attendant fine, then that whistleblower then gets a percentage wow. of the bounty. <laughs> and so that's the, the percentage of the bounty. The most recent example in the United States is the Dodd-Frank statute, which was enacted right after the Great Recession of 2008. And so a whistleblower incentive program was put into place, which actually has led to about a billion dollars worth of recovery. Oh, wow. So I think that we can actually do something very similar for charter schools and for other privatization approaches. So that's one project that I'm working on that will be in uh, Arkansas Law Review pretty soon, I'm hoping. I'm also thinking about kind of like if we're going to have more privatization in education, then what type of structure do we put in place? Mm -hmm. What type of body do we put in place to guard against fraud and mismanagement. An example that we see in states is the Better Business Bureau. And these bureaus have systems and persons in place to, to guard against certain types of fraud and mismanagement. And I'm thinking about doing the same thing for charter schools and for vouchers and other sort of privatization schemes. And the, the thinking is that people will say that parental choice is sufficient to guard against mis mismanagement in charter schools. We don't say that in any other instance where you have some sort of element of privatization. So take food and drug, mm -hmm. you know, food and drug administration, for instance, Let's say you're going to brush your teeth or you're going to take any sort of medication or anything like over the table. There's still room for government to try to make sure that that toothpaste isn't poisonous. Take your car, for instance. Mm -hmm. We can kind of eyeball the car, but it's very hard to see what's going on under the hood. And I posit that there's something very similar in education, that there's still some issues that parents, even though they may know their kids better than others, may not be able to judge on their own what works and what doesn't work. Right. And so there's a place for government there to ensure quality if we go in that direction. Right. And so I don't see, in my mind, sufficient discussion about that. And so I'm working on developing that schema, kind of like what mm -hmm. are the tools that the federal government or state government mm -hmm. would need to have to work in that sort of setting. And I just wonder if this is occurring at a relatively frequent level within the U.S., if it's occurring in England with similar, you know, analogous school types, I imagine it has to be occurring in other countries as well, and, and there must be some sort of chink in the armor that people have figured out how to exploit, and once that's identified, we can, or you can create the legislature that prevents the opening of that, that wound. You, 
I think you just identified another project for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, <laughs> right? I, I mean, if the similar things are happening in similar schools, it's not going to be limited to just these two no, countries. No, no, yeah. it's not. Right. It's not. And, you know, we are importing. Right. And we are importing these ideas. And if we're going to do these things, how do we yeah. make sure that they work in such a way that all the choices that we have are good? That's really kind of like my bottom line. You know, I want good schools, regardless of the system, that's the end product for me. And so that's kind of like where mm-hmm. I see my research going. In any of the other countries or instances of these types of schools, do you see anything meaningfully different there that is positive so that like we could learn from? I think that what I was really impressed when doing research on England, and I will say that England has its issues too. <laughs> What I was really impressed was how the members of parliament are very concerned about what's going on. They're having hearings, they're pushing the uh, educational agencies to create better oversight. I mean, you're seeing that in ways that, frankly, I'm not seeing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I would like to see much more of, is to follow... You know, I will. I won't comment on Brexit. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's out of my range right now. But I think that with respect to education, I think that sort of concern, that push, that's something that yeah. I would like to see more of. Advocacy and awareness. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. Definitely, they're doing that in ways that I think that our legislature right. could definitely mm-hmm. learn. From. All in hopes of good schools. Right. Educating kids. So before we sign off, do you have any final concluding remarks or anything you'd like to mention? I will say that what I was really happy when I came to the University of Connecticut, like mm-hmm. a few years ago, I came here hoping for the chance to pursue some of these issues. And I will say that UConn has provided that opportunity for me. What you're doing now is a great way of also helping us get the word out. Sure, absolutely. And so I think that I will say the university's provided a good sort of setting for us to push for the things mm-hmm. in which we believe. So that's one thing I would say. Yes. I think the other thing I would say respect specifically to the issue of education and privatization, and it is that it's really important for us to understand the, the tensions that are in place. Anytime you bring someone into the system that has a chance or is considering the possibility of making profit, making money, there's going to be a need then to provide oversight over that entity. I think that in the research that I've done on education, there's always this push-pull. There's always this instance where we bring in entities, we bring in sort of outside entities with a profit motive. We then say we want them to be innovative, and then we Mm under-regulate. All hell breaks loose, Mm -hmm. and then we have to tighten up. And we just see this so many times that... I'm always amazed at how shocked people are when this happens. So I think that there needs to be a little more skepticism with respect to providing oversight and that relying on self-oversight is just never going to work. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And, yeah. Thank you.